Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. I'm Sarah Griffin. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Today, we're heading back into the Jim Henson mines for only the second time, I think. Weirdly enough, history. only the second time ever, uh, yeah. Yeah, and we're going into into a weird place. We're going to the Dark Crystal. And to bring us there, it's Josh Winning. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for picking this weird, weird film that I've never seen before yesterday. <laughs> Tell us how you found it and when, like, how it came into your life. I found it. So I'm, I'm very similar to a lot of the guests that I think you've had where I'm a video shop kid. I grew mm -hmm. up, I was born 83 and I basically discovered everything in the 80s and 90s through the video shop. Um, there was a little tiny independent shop called Northgate Videos in my hometown in Suffolk and it's miraculously still there. Um, I walked past it just a couple of weeks ago and it still has fantasy movies by the till. Um, I feel like the owners are going on some kind of crusade to ensure that these films never die, basically, mm -hmm. um, because Dark Crystal is still there, Never Ending Story is still there, Labyrinth is still there. Um, and I've never been in as an adult, um, partly because it's often closed when I walk past it. But I would really love to go in and just be like, hi, so you must really love these movies because it's been a long time mm. <laughs> since I first found them in your shop and you, you're still championing them. Mm. Um, but yeah, this so this would have been one of my finds when I was a kid going into the shop with my dad um, and picking out all these amazing chunky VHS video boxes. Um, yeah, so that's where I, I kind of found Dark Crystal. I think I was always a little bit scared of the Jim Henson and like never ending story type ones. There was, there was always, cause all those puppets are quite. Textured. Oh, they're fucked up, man. Yeah. They're fucked up. <laughs> they're, okay, very, sorry. they're very textured films. So I would gravitate more towards Disney stuff when I was younger, but um, yeah. Well, I, yeah, think, so... I feel like that's probably why these films were commercially a bit sort of like not that successful when they came out because parents i'm sure would have been like i don't want to see those weird puppet things so i don't want my children to see them mm. so like an entire generation missed them in on the big screen and discovered them later on video um, what a way to what a way to see them as well because of that texture that you're talking about the look of it is so watching it again in any like you know blu-ray dvd even like context the grit and the deep uh i guess um filter that a vhs puts in them forgives a lot of the issues that would otherwise deflate the fantasy right mm -hmm. so i don't know how i would have felt seeing the dark crystal for the first time on the big screen or the never-ending story or labyrinth and i think something about the small altar of a television and a VHS that you kind of kneel to when you're a child and what opens up there is really precious. It's not the same as having your brain blown open in a cinema. There's something smaller and kind of more powerful about that, I think. And personal as well, because you're right mm. there in front of the TV, probably either on your own or with a family member. And it's almost like you're discovering this world for yourself like the mm. film the dark crystal starts and it's basically a documentary it's like yeah. someone saying that you know he's called the classy narrator in the script the classy narrator <laughs> um introduces us to the world of thra and it really is like these are the skexis and this is that and this is that and welcome to this really bizarre world let's go on a journey okay and it feels really personal 
Yeah. And that explanation thing is something that I, as an adult, was, was I, I felt my hackles go up a little bit. I was like, oh, are you explaining something to me? Whereas as a child, <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is this and this is these guys and this is these guys. And do you see those guys were? And I'm more, I was more open to it as a kid. But now going back and watching it recently and then going and um, having watched The Age of Resistance on Netflix, um, I was just like, this is a, this is rulesy. This is complicated, yeah. you know. It's 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 a dense, dense story, um, in terms of um, how much is going on. So pre- presenting it needs a narrator, you know. It needs that sort of flattening of the world, and this is what is going on because otherwise, it's it's a kind of a I'm gonna hesitantly call it a political drama. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it is. It is absolutely because you've. The Skeksis are clearly a parody of yeah aristocracy. You know they are gaudy as hell. They've got all these these sort of the the jewels and the clothing and yeah the bits. I've got the bits. Um, and yeah, it clearly is. It has that level to it. So yeah, if you didn't have the narrator telling you it's okay, this is another world, you probably would be a bit like, what's um what are the uh, the Conservative Party doing in that castle? <laughs> what are these guys doing? Um, could you yeah. do a quick summary of the narrator's job for us, just for anybody who hasn't watched it just yet? Yes, yeah. or who's coming back to it as an adult, because mm. you might remember it as a child as being a sort of a dreamy, dark, scary hallucination, when in actual fact, it's a very tightly structured um, story about war and divided nations. So can you give us an overview? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's essentially about the struggle between these two races in Thra, these Skeksis, who are these twisted vulture-like creatures who exist in darkness in a castle, and the mystics, who are these the gentle, um, very spiritual, musical creatures who They're live like big fraggles. <laughs> big fraggles in a commune with swirling patterns and lots of wind, lots of like pop ballad kind of wind in their hair. Um, and there's a prophecy that the so the world the world of Thra is essentially falling apart and dying, and there's a prophecy that the only um, creature that can can save Thra is a Gelfling, which is a sort of humanoid elf type creature, but uh, they've all been wiped out for for thousand for I think for a thousand years potentially via a particularly horrifying extinction in my opinion oh the way, it's genocide the way that it's it's, ab- it's and it's it is abjectly devastating um yeah. what, what happens to the gelflings um um but there's only one left there's only one well apparently there's only well, one left yeah he has been raised by the mystics and his master on his deathbed instructs jen the gelfling to uh go off find the crystal shard uh and do something with it he doesn't tell him what it is he dies before he can tell him that and so jen sets off on this quest to find the crystal shard and save the world of thra and adventure and crazy creatures ensue it really throws you in like i think because there's no um there's no human there's no humans in it everything is no a puppet humans. so and yeah. everything is a new race to you. there's no like jen like he's not really a, like a entry point into it for you because he knows the mystics already and he knows who the skexis are so he's not like what are the skexis you have to you have to intuit it all from everything you see and and the language of it is so mm. dense you know yeah. that you're suddenly like hold on i have to remember all these 
Yeah. There's three races and a world and there's four races. There's these little guys as well. Like there's so much hitting you at once, you know? Um, and uh, I just watched the documentary today about uh, the making of it where Henson, or I think it was Frank Oz was like, yeah, and the Gelfling are your introductory or your bridge characters. And I'm just like, no, they're fucking not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not. I'm so yeah. sorry. <laughs> My friend who watched it for the first time was like, so the Gelfling is like the son of the mystics and i was like no no you've, no, you've got to listen to the the classy narrator has already given you everything you need <laughs> admittedly there was a lot there yeah. <laughs> but no he's not their son that's a very important bit of information yeah. <laughs> um, so anna did you find it a lot to take in at the start if you came to this fresh yeah definitely um even because it seemed i was trying to just like even just try to keep in my mind which what the dark crystal actually was and how it related to stuff because like they're gaining power from it but it also does something else and i could never quite keep in my mind everything i needed to know about the crystal itself the skexes and like you pick up like names of different like i remember like one of them calling one chamberlain and i was like that was chamberlain remember that you've, you've got a bit of information now keep that in yeah. mind <laughs> it's important he's um, just lazy looking one you know yeah yeah, yeah. keep an eye um, on that one not they're, that they're all a bunch of lookers or anything, but like no, he's particularly they, bad. They look like someone buried a vulture and then dug it up after a month yeah. and then bejazzled it. Is what the sketch watching like. watching people puppeteer them is mm. astonishing. Like yeah. they are such an incredible feat. Of I was watching in documentary how they made them smile. Like they oh, yeah. the details on them were unbelievable. And in the Netflix show, when they look kind of slightly more vitalic, which is they're still fucking gross, you know, but they, they look a bit more healthy. <laughs> younger, I suppose. yeah. Significantly younger. Oh, um, yeah. And more, you you can see the, gla- the glamour of them isn't as rotted and faded. You know, mm. they're more like, I guess, flashy vultures than dead and buried vultures, I think, in the yeah. original series. They're hideous. They're just unapologetically oh, yeah. disgusting. Um, you know, they eat, they're really messy eaters. Yeah. They are rude to each other. They've got really terrible gross. habits, like Chamberlain's like whimpering sound is just really annoying, but in a brilliant kind of way. Mm. <laughs> yeah, they're horrible. They're just irredeemable, basically. Uh, but after Jen goes on his journey, he discovers quite quickly that he is not the only golfling mm. left alive, which is very yeah. important. She, yeah, Kira, the, the, the next girlfriend, she comes in around 40 or so, 30 minutes in. Mm. Um, and that kind of almost acts as like a rocket launcher for the story. I think it, until then you've had lots of preamble. Jen kind of goes on his quest about 20 minutes in. Then you get Augra, who obviously is just sort of like fabulous, um, who's sort of like the soothsayer type character. But the story doesn't really sort of sink its claws in until there's like, oh shit, there's another Gelfling. Um, what does that mean? You know, that could shoot off in any, any, you know, kind of directions. You know, they could fight to the death over being the last girlfriend. Mm. Anything could happen. Um, but I guess that's when the romance of it all really sort of like gels when those two characters meet. The, um, is it the dream fast? Is that the term? Yeah. It's a really cool idea. And it's so yeah. well done. Because again, it's a gigantic info dump where you're here yeah. getting two characters entire life stories at you at once but you actually do manage to take it all in and it's not confusing. It's like, it should have won some kind of editing award just for the Dreamcast sequence alone because it really is, um, obviously, it's, so for anybody who hasn't watched it yet, when girl things touch hands, they can 
basically share memories with each other. So they just like they info dump on each other essentially. Yeah. Um, Which is it's such a clever cool. yeah. way of doing show don't tell. It's sort of like mm. if you're ever going to teach a writing class, just show everyone, show your students that scene because it is complete info dumping, but it's done so elegantly you almost don't notice. And it's in such an emotional context, and it's romantic. You know, yeah, it's a really beautiful way to do a lot of unpacking in a very romantic and kind of lovely context you know um the gelfling are uh they are like humanoid but they are i'm gonna hesitate around the word fairies because (laughs) kira has wings which is uh, a really astonishing reveal in terms of like how things like look and feel in, in the show but what struck me about that and i guess we mentioned agra briefly is that the visual designer of uh, the Dark Crystal, his hand is all over it and his name is Brian Froud. So do you want to talk a bit about Brian Froud, Josh? Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. he's this name that is just like wreathed in, in mysticism mm. um, because he, you know, he's, I think he's from and lives in Devon, which clearly is the home of the fairies. Um, you know, it was his art that inspired Jim Henson in the first place. I think Jim Henson came across a book um, that Brian Froud had illustrated. Yeah. Yeah. And he just sort of fell in love with these um, these illustrations of like goblins and fairies and um, sort of earthy creatures. And something about them, I think, made Jim Henson feel like he, that's the look that he wanted if he was going to make a puppet fantasy film. Um, and so, yeah, so he kind of got in touch with Brian Froud, they threw a few ideas around, they started working together, and basically Brian Froud designed, I think he designed everything that you see in the film, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, it's just this perfect marriage of the artist and the sort of, the um, sort of like mechanical creator, I guess, like the, mm. the person who takes the magic and somehow makes it real, or makes it work in a functional, but equally fantastic way. Mm, I think that Agra's face in particular, obviously the whole thing is aesthetically very Brian Froud, but I think her face, her little mm. squishy nose and her eyes are the most completely of his aesthetic. Like when I was when I was 15, I got a deck of um, Oracle cards from a friend. It was my first tarot deck or my first reading deck. And it was the fairy Oracle by Brian Froud. And I had at that point seen the labyrinth, but I hadn't seen, I didn't, I didn't see Dark Crystal until I was maybe 17. And um, that look that he has with creatures is so synonymous for me now with Henson. It's like their, their matches, it's exquisite. You know, he also visually designed obviously the labyrinth um, and um, his kid, Toby is the baby in the labyrinth. um, It's Toby Froud. But I think that that, the look and the texture of everything is almost as powerful, if not more powerful than the story. Oh yeah. Do you know, like the vibe. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing that I think is so magical about this film is that it feels like a whole world. Like you are in Thra completely. Um, and like, I think the credit has to go to the cinematographer. I think he's called Oswald Morris because he um, put this filter over the camera while they were filming that makes it very subtly look like a fairy tale. 
um, you know, it, it kind of gives it this slightly gauzy, mystical ambience to it. Um, and it, yeah, you just like you just want to know more about this planet. You feel like you've just been dropped into it. Um, and you, you almost feel like you can explore it through watching the film. You know, every single crook and cranny or nook and cranny is is just populated by something, whether it's like a, a tree that's like subtly breathing in the background or... Or like the, the little, just, so there'll be little, like a rat puppet sometimes for no, there's no, no yeah. quite a rat, but like there's no need for it. Like the, <laughs> yeah. you, if it wasn't there, you would not feel any less of the film, but it just, it's more texture in the world. It's all little creatures scuttering around. Just, all extra effort gone in in every single corner of the the screen essentially yeah yeah that's the thing isn't it it's like the, the love and care that's been put into it is it's all on the screen you know it's it's sort of like the jim henson and frank Oz and everyone who's involved in the film they trusted that people would be able to find these things mm. and um just by having them there it it makes it sort of even more special mm. it felt like like jim henson was and frank Oz, i guess as well we're kind of trying to prove that you could do like serious films with puppets because yeah. it felt like a lot of the times they would use sometimes jen and kira were obviously um human actors with a mask on but very rarely and it seemed like well, even when they could have gotten away with just having a human in a mask they would use a puppet instead because yeah. it was like no, you can do all this with puppets and we want to do There's like three puppets. people manning that puppet as well. Mm. Like that is a lot of bodies moving that yeah. tiny fella across the screen, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like yeah. extra, extra work and extra labor that in some ways is so brutally decimated by time. Like, which sucks. But I think that we're obviously enormous fans uh, of uh, practical effects here, but when it works, it it, it's moving to look at because not only can you feel the impression of the space, you can see immediately that everybody who touched it loved it. Like yeah. there's that sequence with the, is it, a, is it the observatory with all the mm -hmm. fucking hell? Like yeah. that, that would take your breath out of your body. Do you know what I mean? And mm. uh, that level of compassionate detail is like, I don't, I, I don't, you just don't see it now. It's it's pushing at the limits of like what's possible, what was possible then. It felt when we did mm. Clash of the Titans as well, which doesn't, it looks yeah. aged now, but yeah. you can you can tell it's pushing the limits of what it's doing. Yeah. Um, mm. Same, exact same as Dark Crystal, where I remember this is going to be, this might be an unflattering comparison, but I remember weirdly Simon Pegg defending Avatar saying the story can't be that complicated because this is, you need to absorb everything that's technically that's happening right now because what's happening isn't a huge leap forward for like filmmaking and i feel the dark crystal is the same thing we're like it's quite an a to b journey story like the initial info dump aside he has a place that he has to get to and there's like stops along the way but there's no twists really in it and it's because it gives you more time to just enjoy and absorb the absolute like mastery of like puppeteering that's happening there's also like no jokes in it either no it's, it's very a really serious film yeah oh i, really I know serious. i think augur is full of jokes oh, oh, yeah augur has that great line of yeah when she finds out the master is dead like where's the master he's dead oh he could be anywhere yeah. so that's it, that anywhere. Line. yeah yeah oh yeah 
And also, it's... like, Chamberlain, when he calls someone a spithead, I'm sorry, that is <laughs> the most in the perfect new... insult. In the Netflix one, the Netflix one is hornier and grosser simultaneously, <laughs> but not funnier. Do you know what I mean? Like, it is the most, I think, I think it's the most po-faced Henson project, but compared, I guess, you could, you, anything could be called po-faced compared to, like, the fucking Muppets. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and the, the campery and nonsense of David Bowie mincing around a cardboard labyrinth. Do you know what I mean? Which is not, that's not a put down, by the way. I, I would live there. Like, that's my favorite films. Um, I do live there in my mind. I do. You know, I do. My, safe, ne- my safe place. I have never left. Um, but I, I think that that seriousness is really compelling because the whole, I guess the thesis, like Frank Oz was talking about, I, I, I was watching the documentary earlier and I was barely able to make it through it because I just can't hear either of those men speaking. Um, I don't know what it does. It's like Pavlovian. Like it completely just devastates me and I don't know why. Makes um, you cry. But, huh? Makes you cry. It does make me cry. And, wow. and that's my, that's my, like, my, my, my cry radar is the sound of um, Jim Henson's speaking voice. Yeah. I don't know why, because it's kind of like Kermit. <laughs> It's like Kermit, like whenever Kermit <laughs> sings like Kermit. the Rainbow Connection, if you're no. if you're not crying at that, you're not human. Oh, we used to do that song in choir and I don't know how I made oh. it It's I used to yeah. I used to go to this big there was this event that happened it still does happen every month in Oakland in, in California. Um it, its name big header on that the name of it did not used to be cool. It used to be called Tourette's Without Regrets. That's what that oh, show wow. was sure was called for years. It's called something else now. But um the guy who runs it was L. Ron Hubbard's grandson. There you go. Weird. Um, And it was a fantastic, a big live show where they would have like um, aerial performers, like incredibly risque burlesque, uh, poetry, rap battles. Like it was sort of like a a kind of a circus that happened every month. I I won their dirty haiku battle a couple of times. Um, And and they didn't have a stage, they had a catwalk. But at the end of every show, there's 600 people in this warehouse called the um, uh, Oakland Opera House. And at the end of every show, and it was rowdy and it was intense and like a lot, like mad shit happened up there. A lot of nudity. The MC, Jamie Duolf, would get, uh, turn the lights on of the whole venue and make everyone stand up. Uh, and you had to uh, link arms to the people around you and you would play Rainbow Connection at the end of oh, every show. Wow. Uh, not a fucking dry eye in this. Oh my like, God. Like it was uh, incredibly powerful and incredibly strange. And something I still am like, I kind of can't believe that that was real. And that did that song just sort of permeates everybody. So among all of the chaos on the floor, you just Kermit the Frog's Jim Henson's voice sort of gathering through. But that's a very long segue into saying that during the conversation that Frank Oz and Jim Henson, one of them said that what they thought was missing and was important from children's cinema was horror. Absolutely. And that it is so important to be afraid as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, and this film context. does it. Like I, it's so scary that I had to watch it on my own. My my sister and my mom, my dad, my my dad maybe, but they wouldn't watch it with me. I'd have to sit there and basically yeah. watch it in the front room on my own. Um, Were you afraid? Like, did it give you that kind of that nice? I'm scared, but I can't stop watching this feeling. Or was it not scary to you? I don't think. I just genuinely don't think it scared me. Uh, maybe it's because maybe I'm just remembering having watched it over and over and over again. So I became yeah. sort of desensitized to it and you know it's going to be a happy ending, etc. Um, but it is, it's creepy, it's unsettling. Mm. And like you don't really understand the the context of, of everything that's going on until the final moments. Like I think yeah. the, 
if anything's going to make me cry in, in the dark crystal it's the closing 10 minutes yeah. where it's this crescendo of everything coming together in such beautiful perfect synchrony synchronicity or whatever it's called um and it's almost like it's too big to to just sit and observe like you it becomes something that's kind of like inside of you um yeah. and the stakes are enormous like Kira is stabbed in the back um Fisk gets hanging off a rock that's like over this lava pit um Jen is just like well what the fuck do I do Every, the castle's falling down falling down them. yeah it's so huge um and I forgot what, like, what we were talking about before that but, but no but horror scary. I bet is it yeah, frightening it yeah, is it's scary yeah but that, I guess the kind of horror that you feel as an adult, I don't know, is very different because you apply it more directly to your like lived experience, especially with contemporary horror, which I suppose like, I guess, post say Hostel or Saw or that sort of that era of gore and shock horror, like a lot of it is meant to be lesson oriented and to implant fears in you about the world around you or suspicion. Whereas when you're a child, the fears are sort of more existential and the horror is more existential because like like at the end of Never Ending Story, when the nothing just fucking eats everything and the rock biter, you know, weeps over watching his friends die because he couldn't hold on to them, also a children's film. Um, like there's this sort of, and you're like, you watch the fucking castle crumble and the old world be, re- be revealed from under the new world. Like there's, that is so much, you know? So the feeling that you yeah. get is like, horror is the word, but the fear isn't the same as the fear that other sort of heart, do you, does, am, I, am I making sense? Do you know what I yeah. mean? There's a, there's a well, lot of weird, horrible stuff in there, yeah. Like, yeah. Is it more of like the, the feeling of it? Like that you're more susceptible to the raw kind of, the essence of horror mm. rather than like thinky thinky horror maybe as a kid no thinky horror all yeah. feely horror yes <laughs> yeah, exactly yes so that's why it's unsettling because you don't really understand what's going on but you know the skexis they bad um <sighs> you know you guys they're soldiers yeah very unsettling yeah, yeah. And like you see them eating you i can, love you that you can kind of see it's one person but you can also see there's a lot of limbs moving so yeah. it's like it's still, even though you can you know with someone it still feels very otherworldly and alive in a way that's not nice to look at for very long yeah. and that's the thing like to go back to what you were saying earlier about like the weight of it um and how difficult uh, it was pushing the edges of technology and stuff and what people were able to do on film it's you can also see you know this the, this wasn't easy to perform either like the mystics no are someone basically stretched out along the ground using their hand for the head and then shuffling along um i think jim henson said that he got into the costume once and he could only tolerate that actual pose for like five to ten seconds and the guys in the gartham big bug things they had to be like hung up on pegs basically to take the weight off them because each costume was so heavy and i think that that leaves something behind in the film you know the Mm. struggle to get it made on a physical level as well as like an emotional level everyone that you see and exactly like there's a there's a feeling that every living person that is behind the movement of these creatures like it's like the design it's the effort Mm. 
you know and so that's the great thing about the documentary is that it lays bare exactly how difficult it is and they're all dancers and mimes yeah like they're all contortionists (laughs) and shit of course they are of course they are you know i was really scared with it oh go on when i sit down to watch the dark crystal i'm like now do I want to watch The Dark Crystal or do I want to watch The Making of The Dark Crystal? Because I think both are equally fantastic. <laughs> shot in a chaser, you know? <laughs> yeah. The shot in a chaser. Uh, yeah, did, you watch the, did you watch The Age of Resistance? I love, love, love The Age of Resistance. I've watched it three and a half times. Um, yeah, I watched it once on my own because my partner was away. And then I went and met him in Japan and we watched it. Uh, watch one episode every night before we went to bed in Japan uh so I've always got that memory as well I'm just I think they did such an amazing job Mm. because they they kind of took it seriously like they took oh yeah the same sense of um game of puppets man it's very it's a (laughs) fucking political drama yeah it really is like yeah it doesn't pander to to little kids or anything or it's for everyone and the Gelfling are almost as fucking bad as everyone else then. Oh, Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because with the impression that you get around uh, Kira and Jem, you're just like, oh, look at these little, look at these fucking cute little guys, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then when you see, I guess, the dynasty lines that they come from, like, I don't know, I, I'm glad well, that we no got to see... Yeah, no wonder the world burned. Yeah, no wonder you were, like, no wonder the fucking... Skeksis were drinking you like Capri Suns. Do you know what I mean? Of course they were. You're a bunch of bitches to each other. You know? Can we go back to that actually, the essence thing? Because that was hard. Yeah, it's that, important. That, that, oh, that really, yeah. oh, really bugged. Like, it really unsettled me. Because yeah. it happens to one of the little potato guys first. And you, you see on camera him getting hollowed out from his essence getting drained from him. Which is horrible enough. He turns into... But then, when it happens to Kira and it gets stopped like halfway through. But then for the rest of the film she has big dark bags under her eyes. She looks wrecked. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. absolutely she's, wrecked. She's fucking wrecked, man. She just got and chewed he... on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and Jen, I swear, is a different puppet for Jen as well in the final scenes because the expressions are suddenly different. Like they do look kind of slightly startled for the entire film, and then suddenly at the end, she looks fucked. She looked like she's been out on the town for like a week nonstop, and yeah. he looks suddenly, he looks hollowed out as well. He looks like the enormity of it all is suddenly hit him in the face and he's crying and um but yeah the essence scene oh god like, do you, just when you think that they've done everything they're going to do to scare you or to make you feel they're like surprise wonder yeah. why there's no fucking girl drink yeah <laughs> here's why you know <laughs> like that is um and it also really cements the threat of the skeptics right then do you know like again there's no not that there's like no humor in this film but the threat then becomes really apparent. Like the Skeksis aren't just amorphous, like bad guys because they look like skeletons wearing like gross, raggedy, fat, once splendorous clothing. Like their trappings aren't the only frightening thing about them. Mm-hmm. Their practices and their what they're capable of casually exerting is what is frightening about them. And their court in the Age of Resistance is, is kind of funny ish you know it's more it's a little bit of that little bit of the camp that we were missing i think you know um uh forget forgive me if i'm wrong but one of them fully does piss in the middle of the floor during it right that is something that happens very early on the first episode that is i didn't make that up oh my god head. 
I can't remember. I think that happens in the first episode, and I was like, Hang on a minute. I mean, there's lots of bodily fluids. I feel like there is a, there is like a really shocking bodily. So, so they're sort of trying to cement early on, like, these lads are mad fucks up. Look what, look what they'll do. Whereas you don't see as, aside from the eating stuff, you don't see as much of that grotesquery on, like, or it would be, I guess it would be easy to dismiss them as, as just a grotesque sort of, you know, bad yeah. guys until they reveal the extent of They're what they're basically they do. cannibals, you know. Yeah, and the worst kind. Themselves. Yeah, yeah. Like there's the way that they consume other living creatures is a like they don't shy away from showing it either, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. And like, also like is... the the podlings that have been drained the already, they just look like living ghosts they look absolutely haunting Mm. like the white eyes and the flaky skin and like the scalp and stuff it's just like really upsetting and i love the way the film introduces them sort of like super like they're actually in the first few shots they're like shadows at the top of the observatory bit in the castle in the crystal chamber like they're introduced really early on and you just kind of accept that they're a part of this world and then you kind of learn that oh shit those really cute things that you just saw jamming in the uh in the tavern mm, that's them you know that's what happened <laughs> to them <laughs> just delicious yeah like it's it's not um it goes a very very long way and you know we say a lot like i guess on the podcast like would this get made today and i guess the age of resistance did get made but it did not get it didn't get pitched directly towards children under any circumstances and also it got cancelled very quickly which no is such a shame two. no yeah um, i think it's just and... really expensive like if you oh yeah so, <laughs> yeah it looks expensive yeah if it's six people per puppet that's a lot of people yeah. and then you add on they hired and this like i kind of feel like they didn't really need to do this but then they hired the really glitzy starry voice cast to like dub oh, over yeah. the puppet the puppeteers who already have Simon Pegg is in it Speaking of Simon, Simon but you, mentioned, you mentioned Simon Pegg yeah. earlier. Yeah, Pegg, yeah. yeah, he's Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's great to have like Annie Taylor Joy voicing a Gelfling and like Helena Bonham Carter. She, and she like basically that. is a Gelfling, you know. So <laughs> like, why not? Like, it's also get her just in there. Completely unnecessary. It's kind of surplus yeah. to requirement, really. So you know, I imagine that that's a hefty chunk of cash as well. Yeah, I shame. mean, it's and doing it in CGI would completely undermine it. Like, it wouldn't have. I remember it being announced and being like. <gasps> Like every time they, every so often they're like, and they're making a labyrinth sequel. And I'm like, okay, leave it alone, leave it where it was. They did try. CGI all over my baby. (laughs) Did you see the, did you see the making of the Age of Resistance on Netflix? No, I didn't. No, I see. I've seen it there, but I haven't watched it. It's great. But there, there is test footage where they were thinking about doing a new Dark Crystal, either a, a film or a TV show, t- streaming series. And the Skeksis were always going to be puppets again, but then they kind of dabbled in doing CGI Gelfling and there's test footage of it. And it's just a bit like, eh, it's like the Clone Wars, like Star Wars. It just doesn't right. fit this world. It's it's not that at all. And the, the Gelfling live in, a, in such a dangerous, uncanny valley space anyway, where yeah. that is not a human right like there, there is yeah. a weird distance between us and them but also a closeness and looking at some of the illustrations and the te- the pilot objects that were done and the, the test um puppets that were done for the, the gelfling and documentary um like the that is exactly uncanny valley it's that space of i don't know why i don't like that 
Yeah, mm. which funnily, and as a child, didn't notice the Gelfling had quite fixed faces. No, no, not as a kid uh, or as a teenager. No, as yeah. a grown up, I can't, I can't unsee it. Right. I, I'm kind of charmed the by it now. Have laid on the the personality enough. Yeah, exactly. But I think, I think that if they had done it in CGI, no amount of good voice work mm-hmm. would have defeated how uncanny that would have been. Like that yeah, would have been uncomfortable. It's the the point was never that they were puppets. You know, it's like the mm. the film has puppets because that was the best medium to tell this story, um, and it doesn't kind of. It, it doesn't show off look what we're doing with puppets it's like this is the only way that we possibly could have done this yeah and to do it with cgi i'm sorry i don't care how long it takes you to animate a girlfling it's cheating it's cheating girlfling it or puppets. that's a puppet yeah that's what that's yeah. made of don't be a dick about it like yeah <laughs> like there's a i don't know like i guess i i feel like a star wars nerd when i talk about hints and stuff do you know what i mean i'm just like like leave leave some shit where it belongs don't don't be fucking with that there's legacy around that no work is made like that work is made was made you know so there is a sort of a like you'll never catch me tweeting about it or giving out or anything but uh, and only in this context would i give out about it but i do think that there even though dark crystal was a commercial disaster and it didn't have enough to put it out himself nearly yeah, you know, he had to fund of... bankroll it on the way out. Like, yeah. it still has a, a huge amount of power. The real, it's real. The girls that get it get it. You know, mm-hmm. like it's a, it's a, a huge one, and it, it obviously influenced your own work as well. So, as a as a as a writer st- starting off and with your own creative journey, like, what has your relationship been with, in ter- in terms of like visiting it and and keeping it as part of your like spice cupboard or your 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 sourdough starter um that's what i always refer to my my special films and my sort of like important books and things as they're sort of my the contents of my sourdough starter um can you talk about the relationship your own work has with it yeah i think it's just it's just always been there it's just like a friend you know it's mm. it's like like labyrinth and never ending story and you know gremlins um goonies all those like batteries not included all those films that live completely rent free in my soul and always will and probably in- influence inspire me in ways that i will never be able to articulate sort of consciously because they're just like a part of the fabric of me mm. um so i i do think that the dark crystal is essentially a gateway drug for a love of the horror genre it just is Mm. like i moved very swiftly into loving horror films and horror stories as well you know like my favorite author is and always will be rolled is sorry is robin jarvis not rolled robin jarvis who wrote um the deptford mice books he wrote the whitby witches books um and they're all sim a very similar vibe to jim henson where it's sort of like crazy creatures but very emotionally grounded um sort of mysteries that build towards this sort of epic denouement where everything just fits together beautifully and not in a way that feels um sort of artificial but in a way Mm. that feels like this is where we're always going to end up guys kind of thing which i love um so yeah i think yeah the dark crystal is just is one of those films that um it's just in me and has been and I just go back to it constantly I never go grow tired of it I've seen it four times this year for various reasons I watched it again just before we came on here 
I'm never bored of it ever. I always wait to get bored. I'll be like, eh, don't. It Sorry, never that's my local gelfling having a scream there for no reason. Um, Is that your fizz gig agreeing? Oh, yeah. I wish it was the smallest fucking fizz gig. Weaver! Got a great buddy. Um, so sorry for screaming into the mic there. <laughs> I <never> cut that <laughs> out. <laughs> uh, what do you say about, um, I guess, the emotional lever? Um, big emotions and weird creatures. That counterbalance is so interesting, isn't it? Like that oh, yeah. really, those are the sort of polarities where all those vibes exist between, you know? Yeah. I know that's actually like too big a thought for me to actually process. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, yeah, that you can basically make the weirdest creature lovable if there's like emotion intrinsic to them. Like Fizzgig, at first yeah. it's like, oh my God, make him shut up, that gappy yeah. thing. But then because he then kind of gets startled by the nebri in the pond and like yelps and pounces bounces off you're like oh, okay i actually i immediately love you so like, yeah. like the worm in labyrinth i'm just a worm come and have a cup of tea with me in the missus you know like and because of his enormous wisdom yeah. and, which he, he actually does have this yeah. enormously important piece of advice to give to sarah like he goes from hello to like if you gone that hello? way but like if you you know, yeah. like he's he's a part of the every every creature that you see has a little heart in it. Yeah. And there's in all of those cynical. Things. Jim Henson no. doesn't do cynicism, I don't yes. think. Yes. You're dead right. Like the, the Muppets at their best are not cynical, even. Even though the Muppets operate in satire and comedy, I think the only cynicism that you ever see out of them really at their finest was Stadler and Waldorf and that's on purpose because yeah. they're literally the peanut gallery and that's the one joke that they the do one. <laughs> that's it you know so even, there's there's even sincerity entrenched in that um and I think that the giving I think the reason that you see so much heart in the weirdness is because all of these creatures are made by hand mm. like and how could you spend I'm gonna myself fucking cry um so much time building these creatures like building their skin building their bones building the parts of them that, that make them movable by puppeteers like building their eyes you know how could you do that without them suddenly having a really deep and profound presence you know mm -hmm. i think you, like your novel is quite is very much about that as well in some ways about the idea of things the, the literal life that these weird creatures and silly creatures can take on by virtue of the love their creator literally puts on them with their hands yeah absolutely yeah and it's funny like i i have met Comet the frog um i met him on the set of muppets most wanted in 2015 i want to say stop and tell us everything I'm like? everything yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. it was sort of one of those moments we were just like Oh my God, it's Kermit the Frog. And you, but you don't look at the guy holding Kermit. You look at Kermit and you interact with Kermit. And he wants you to interact with him. He doesn't want you to look at the guy who's just sort of like, sort of, you know, chaperoning. Um, yeah. His but friend. Then it's, yeah, his friend. But then it's funny because then sort of like 20 minutes after that, 
we walked past um, a table and the puppets were on the table having a nap. And it was just sort of like, oh, you know, you felt that in your heart slightly where you're like, they're just sleeping. You know, they're just resting between takes. It's fine. Um, Because they become living things completely. You know, Alan and I had that experience with an Irish puppet Mm. called Bosco who is our national treasure, a non-binary icon, lives in a box, has red hair and a little green shirt. And every Irish child, given that there was very little television to be had in the 90s uh, and 80s. And fucking, I think, I feel like Bosco is 70s. Bosco's old. Maybe just the edge of the 70s, possibly. Yeah, like yeah. early yeah. 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alan and I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Bosco's human um, and she uh, brought us in and showed us Bosco's box and introduced us to Bosco and Alan and I were not able to speak no wow starstruck yeah we got yeah. to like, shake Bosco's hand oh yeah wow. yeah, yeah. And Bosco set up that's like meeting for a picture and oh. yeah it's like meeting we were both... part of your past surely like mm. reconnecting with your past in a weird well, way the first t- time i ever went to the theater was to see bosco live when i was four years old so oh wow like it's it's hard to overstate how obsessed every single irish child was at bosco in the 80s yeah <laughs> so but also i think like because i was going to say before you totally went off by saying you've met kermit anytime kermit like appears by surprise in like a chat show or something or in, like snl the warmth you feel off the crowd and the, <gasps> the excitement yeah. to be seeing kermit is um so real it's yeah people have so much affection for kermit i've i said once on twitter if i went to jail i would want kermit to be the person who bailed me out of jail he's the only fictional <laughs> character i would trust to bail he'd me be out. okay with it as well he'd be like, yeah he'd be okay. really understanding yeah 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 you did your best and see he's so used to managing everybody else's problems mm-hmm. you know he's like the true diplomat we watched um Oops tonight um recently uh, over the christmas because it was on disney plus and um there's a certain t- f- time frame that the muppets exist in at their most powerful Mm. and contemporary Muppet stuff is a little it's a little funny for me because I've gotten older they've stayed the same yeah. uh, my, per, my 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 favorite Muppet is, is uh, Gonzo um, oh. Muppets from Space is a film that I will simply never watch again as long as I live uh, because oh. Uh, oh just cried beginning tent <laughs> like just not able to keep it together like completely decimated me that is that's funny because I really like that one, but it's not the one that kind of got panned. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. not good. It's just really oh, okay. sad. Like, it's, no, no, no. That's not good. Like, it's no. It's we're not. It's not like it's not like Muppets Take Manhattan. You know, it's not yeah. like that. Jesus, no. But it's very, very, very sad. It's like Big Bird yeah. walking down the road with a suitcase. Sad. Like it's fucking Ooh. very, very sad. Um, and I think part of why these stories have such emotional power in that way in terms of conjuring sorrow again is the idea that these bizarre looking creatures all feel so alive and feel so complete and um that's down to the sort of the people who built them and the people who operate them obviously and Mm. that's present in the dark crystal it's present in labyrinth um it's it's very very present in the dark crystal i think because you have people like each skexy then each of the mystics is a fucking person 
you know, mm-hmm. like, and while you can't see them, there is something breathing in there. You know? Oh yeah. And they literally oof. breathe as well. Like the puppets yeah. breathe, like the, the, uh, the podling in the chair being drained of his essence oh, at the end. The most horrifying part of it is when the beam goes off him and he starts to pant. It, it's yeah. awful. It's so like, real. Exhales it. He like holds it out of himself. Yeah. It's a, uh, and I, I think that obviously on, on two ends of the kind of two extreme of the bind the Henson binary, um, I love putting things on scales, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the cake to bread scale, the, the the dark crystal to the Muppet show Henson yeah. scale. But I, I do think that there is a sort of an in, inseparable emotional weight that both of them hold, which permit the Muppets such batch at silliness, but also permits that our crystal such extremes and seriousness yeah as well. and it's there's so much going on there you know i could i think maybe that's one of the reasons i'll never get tired of it is because i feel like i'm sort of subconsciously trying to grasp the full extent of what jim henson was trying to say with it you know he studied um i think he was big into buddhism and um, well he said that was the most reflective of his own sense of you know understanding of the world his reading list for this film is incredibly yeah. esoteric it's like he would like be a, like a perfect guest for Conor Habib if he was still alive. Oh my it's God, Conor Habib like... and Conor Habib and Jim Henson. <laughs> yeah, like stop, like <laughs> absolutely on repeat forever, crying into my headphones. Um, I, I don't know, like Hen- Henson's like untimely um death is something I always feel very. I f- I don't know. I've never. I don't think I've ever even talked about it, but it's something that I think about regularly. I don't know about you, Josh. Do you feel like that about it? I don't know if it's something that... Yeah, well, um, not to make it all about my book or anything, but... Um, oh, please the... do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the spark for the book was me reading around Labyrinth and discovering that he essentially died with his film kind of perceived as a failure. Um, like Labyrinth basically bombed at the box office. Um, you know, he made Labyrinth and, and it's sort of everything about it is almost a response to the Dark Crystal, or at least the criticisms that were leveled at the Dark Crystal. So in Labyrinth, we now have humans because the girls were accused and music, exactly more more Muppety than the Dark Crystal was. Um, It was made for like 25 million. It made 12 million in just the US, I think, which is heartbreaking. And by all accounts, it kind of did break Jim Henson's heart a little bit when it was sort of not just commercially a failure i think that it just sort of got quite snooty reviews nobody really seemed to understand what he was doing and as somebody who grew up on henson's fantasy the two fantasy films that he made which i think are absolute stone cold classics um to kind of discover that not everyone felt that way and not only that but jim henson himself almost questioned it maybe a little bit or or felt not underappreciated, but just sort of like he tried so hard. And I think people who try break my heart slightly because yes. it's just sort of, I don't know, is like an honorable thing to do is like to try, even though there's a chance of failure. It's so vulnerable. Yeah. To be like, I tried super hard to make this thing and nobody understood it. And yeah. that is abjectly devastating. And yeah. I and he never got to make another film. And no. I feel like we missed so much. Yeah. 
but now we have this weird culture where the cult where the cult power of labyrinth is fucking huge yeah it is universally loved you know like it's it's known as a i guess a a cult like beyond a cult classic i would go so far as to say it's not really cult at all anymore yeah you know (laughs) yeah it's post-cult post-cult and i think a little bit of that is goes back to what you're saying at the very beginning about the power of the video store yeah and that is where labyrinth and our crystal found the beginnings of their legacies it wasn't in the fucking theaters it was in these private spaces because they are both deeply emotional deeply tricky films that Mm. are wielding things that are kind of a lot to handle they're heady. Yeah. Both of them. Complicated. You know? They are complicated. Like Labyrinth is not even subtext about sexually coming of age. Yeah. Not even fucking subtext. <laughs> yeah. It's right there. In the year of our it was nineteen eighty eight, was it? Eighty six. Eighty six in the year of our Lord, nineteen eighty six, you put that in a fucking cinema? Like <laughs> that is ahead, that is literally ahead of its time. Yeah. And they did it on purpose, you know, like they hired yeah. David Bowie because he comes with that dangerous rock star yeah, thing without energy. actually being dangerous. You know, he he represents yeah. everything that is rock and roll. So, of course, that's sort of like the flip side to Sarah's um, sort of like flowering, you know, whatever. Like that's a horrible analogy, but her sort of like beginning yeah. to come of age, you know, like she's almost innocent because she's playing dress up. She's playing make believe. And he's out there like actually fucking shit up kind of thing. And, you know, that's why that that dynamic is so interesting because it's two worlds collide. Um, it's the I same think... as the Skeksis and the Mystics. It's the two halves yes. of the same hole. Yeah, like... I, I, that for me is just such a an amazing idea. And I, you know, I, I don't, I've never studied philosophy or anything, but I definitely think that the Dark Crystal formed a an interest in philosophical thinking purely through showing me how it can exist in a story maybe mm. big like big difficult questions about the yeah. nature of consumption and goodness and, and badness and legacy and control and power like this it's not having a small conversation i don't yeah. think it's and weird, kids actually, get it like yeah it's like kids do like it's really like in the 80s it was the kids films that were being like weird and doing big themes and the, the cartoons were all like by our action figures and now it's flipped <laughs> where the cartoons are the ones that are asking like really big questions and the films are all like boss baby and foxes with attitude you know oh my god you leave the foxes alone one <laughs> two <laughs> two uh you're dead right that is so interesting that a lot of the that's a complete medium shift in terms of who's doing the heavy work and what where the people are reaching for artistic expression do you know like you simply would never get the never any story made like no. you would never there's no fucking way that you could walk into a boardroom with a bunch of people from marvel or whatever who have all the money in the world and be like there is this amorphous empty fog that fucking just eats everything and how do you defeat it you kind of don't you just have to let it eat the world you <laughs> know like it's basically kill a horse just we're gonna make yeah. you watch a horse drown mm-hmm. in yeah. this kid film, <laughs> and then break the fourth like, wall at the end. And basically, Bastion 
uh, knows that we're watching him read a story that we've, we've been watching as a movie. And the childlike empress basically looks into camera and says, this is crazy, right? You know, it's kind of... Okay, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's b- batch it, do you know? Like, but equally labyrinth because it's so... Um, like it's not sexualized, but it's a, it's about sexual coming of yeah. age, and it really languishes in its metaphors. Do you know what I mean? It's a sexy film, and then on your other hand, whatever the I don't even I don't even know what how to dis, how to encapsulate the dark crystal because it is philosophical. It is about I'm gonna go back to saying call it a political drama again. <laughs> like, I think it's about connectivity. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's everything is connected we are all part of each other we are all part of the same thing like augra i find fascinating because she like i I was researching this earlier and i like i found a whole ton of crap that is really interesting but just to get really esoteric like there's this thing like plato this guy right Mm -hmm. (laughs) this thing called anima mundi which was like the embodiment of a planet Mm -hmm. um and augra kind of is that she is Thra? She's like Mother Earth, you yes. know, and that that yeah. comes to the fore massively in the bigger lore in like the series and in the books and graphic novels and stuff. But she's also like, there's a bit of is it Buddhism or Hinduism where she's almost kind of like hermaphroditic, as hermaphroditic, yeah. where she's she has breasts but she has a beard and she's sort of quite masculine in a lot of ways, but she's also quite feminine as well. So. I think that, yeah, maybe the, the film as a whole is is about everything's connected, nothing is separate, gender isn't separate, it's all part of yeah. the same mm. whole, essentially. It's one thing, and when you start to put the when you start to put the binaries against each other, like with Skeksis and the Mystics, you take yeah. in a Mystic as Skeksis dies. Yeah, exactly. They are the same. The polarities are false. So if you see Agra as this sort of non-binary entity, like. And she, she's the fucking best, you know what I mean? Like yeah. she's the center of life. And then when you polarize everything against each other, uh, that doesn't work at all either. Do you know? So maybe it is. Well, look a at bigger... Jen, and, Jen and Kira. They come together and they, even though they clearly form some kind of heterosexual union, they are better together. You know, he even says, yeah. at the beginning of the story, he's like, all right, alone then. And then when he meets yeah. Kira and they go on the land stride, he's like, ah, oh, together then. You know, and it's all these little mirroring. That's such hence and fucking dialogue. That is such hence and dialogue. Sorry. That has hence and all the fuck over it, man. Jesus Christ. But like, that's perfect. Do you know? So alone then or together then. And then you mm. know where the, where everyone is supposed to be. So uh, it doesn't surprise me at it's, all. I don't think it's kind of saying you need to be in a relationship. You don't need no. to being a couple to be powerful i think it really is saying it's all in you yeah and in everyone you know don't split things apart put them together right in the big in the big picture rather than a kind of a romantic context for sure like that the polarities are doing nobody no good um but then there's a kind of an added sort of tragedy to the the age of resistance then because it's pretty it's pretty cool so you're kind of walking in and you see the sort of richness um, and uh, luxury and decadence that the Gelfling all, all live in. Yeah, my boyfriend point. said the same thing. He was like, it's making me really sad. And I was like, why is it making you sad? And he was like, well, 
because we know that everyone's going to die. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, it's just, it's just a multi-pack of Gelfling there, but just... <laughs> like, it's the collective noun. Like, you know, it's they're all going slow... down. Oh, yeah. oh. It's bleak, bleak. Um, <laughs> have you any parting notes for us? Um, I don't... So, I don't know. Like, do you think that... Why do you think they aren't making puppet films anymore? This is the big thing that I want to know why. Tell me, why aren't they making puppet fantasy films? Great question. Alan, what do you think? That's a really great question. I think it's expensive. Yeah. That's the main thing. Because, like, CG is, you can create anything with CG now. And puppets, it's its own thing. Like, when you look at Age of Resistance, um, I only watched the first episode, so I have a limited frame reference on it. But, like, it feels very different. And it's, it's a totally different aesthetic and you want you really want to be committing to it and i guess the like the talent pool for that kind of work is all working on muppet films and muppet <laughs> muppet shows right now you yeah. know uh, i guess once jim henson died kind of the, des- the desire maybe in the henson company to do that kind of stuff maybe kind of went with him a bit and it feels like he was the big driver of serious puppet work you know and yeah. that's that's totally um, supposition. I don't, I don't know that for certain, but I guess Return to Oz was a bit was Henson work as well, wasn't it? But that was post Jim Henson, I believe, as well. And so was so, Little Trap of Horrors. That's okay, all. Yeah. Anytime you see a puppet, yeah, Jim's in there or Brian. You know, like mm-hmm. someone is in there. You know, yeah. I guess the desire to originate like fully puppet stuff, though, yeah, is gone, um, which is a shame because oh yeah, it the Dark Crystal. Even the fact that I have to backtrack a little bit for Labyrinth, it really felt like the start of something. It it feels like you feel like you're watching something important when you watch it for the first time. I think mm. I've, I really felt like I was like it was like a Melier film or like, you know, where you're watching something, you're like, this is advanced and pushing forward something. Um, but yeah, I think just the, there isn't a Henson. Jim Henson doesn't exist. I think there's, there's no one on his level, really, is there? I think that's the main reason. Yeah, I actually, I think I'm going to probably have to really agree with you there. Like that you need, in order to corral a fiasco, a production, a fucking 12 ring circus of puppeteers, designers, builders who all care enough and are well paid and taken care of enough for years to build an experiment. No one knows that their film or their, no one knows that their piece of art is going to work. No one, is, no one knows that the thing that they make is going to work. But if it's a novel, that's just you and your laptop computer and your mental health at stake, really, you know? <laughs> like, risk is pretty fucking low, give or take, in terms of input yeah. and output. Whereas the dice roll of, is this film going to work? is very different when there's that kind of labor involved. I'm not saying that CGI and visual art and animation isn't labor. It is, obviously it is. But there's a craft that is completely different from modeling in a computer to prop building. And and those are just different schools, both of which require an enormous amount of talent, dedication and education and hard work. But if there's nobody there to foster that talent, 
if there's no jobs for you, if there's no people who are willing to take enough of a risk. Uh, yeah, I think I just don't. I think it does need a hands and it needs somebody like mm. I compare it almost to stop motion because stop motion is such a physically lab laborious, agonizing job. Like what was the last stop motion banger? Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, uh, yeah, Mr. Fox. I love dogs. dogs as well. Well, yeah. Wes Anderson yeah. would be a really good Wes example Anderson, of somebody yeah. who is a mad He should do a puppet fantasy film. He should fucking shut up. Wesley, Come on, Wes. if you're listening. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I stop smooching that... Angelica Houston for five minutes and listen to it. <laughs> yeah. I do wonder if, because Hollywood obviously listens to the money. Mm. Um, and so I wonder if we are seeing a slight sort of little trickle of puppet resurgence you know we obviously we had the dark crystal tv show which was phenomenal but then things like um the ghostbusters afterlife the recent film that did use some puppetry oh. um and <laughs> nicholas i haven't seen you in it but nicholas cage did a, a horror subversive horror thing called willie's wonderland where he goes into a theme park and all the puppet mechanical things come to life um which looks it's like five nights at freddy's stuff right well do you know yeah. what it might be something like that that kicks it off yeah like mm. i am not a diehard five nights at freddy's person because i find it very difficult to play it's <laughs> a good you. reason <laughs> simply didn't really enjoy it however it is about animatronics and i think what might need to happen is either a cult of personality or a cult of something Mm -hmm. that will guarantee bums in seats yeah or definitely. stream upon stream upon stream upon stream to keep something alive but the risk is the risk is higher than the reward i watched a little shop of horrors recently again again and uh there were two endings to it the second ending was very expensive and didn't make it to the theaters um because it's very sad <laughs> and the regular ending is the one we've all seen um, and the waste of money around the ending oh, yeah. that nobody got to see is legendary. That's a Frank Oz movie as well, which is like, there's you, there's your sort of your Henson Halo. But uh, Audrey 2, at his biggest, 18 people, 16 or 18 people to puppeteer the talking plant. 16 or 18 people it who knew amazing, what they were doing. Though. Oh, it looks amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Look, hasn't aged, hasn't aged a fucking day. Yeah, Do you know? So the only good. thing the that, articulation is crazy. And this because there's 18 people moving it around. Yeah. <laughs> so how many people did that take then to build and to paint, you know? And I don't I think people don't like paying artists, and I think people don't like paying artisans. And I don't also, think those are union jobs and those are fucking union jobs. No, no, they outsource a lot, a lot of that, and a lot of animation is also outsourced mm -hmm. as well. Um, so there's oh, a you lot see of the end credits on Marvel, and it's like you have probably a team of five hundred people. All their names are sort of Middle Eastern names because it's cheap labor. And there are yeah, probably like 10 started. or 11 different effects houses as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like great they're getting work in those countries, don't get me wrong, but it is all outsourced for cheap labor. And the way, to, yeah, nobody's being protected. Nobody is being um, paid correctly. The, there's also then no cohesion across the aesthetics. I am... Um, not a Marvel person. I watched the Avengers in the cinema and then didn't reattend the cinema for two years afterwards. <laughs> I was so angry. It's not an exaggeration. For two years, since San Francisco, I didn't go back. I was like, I don't think I can handle what just happened in, in there again. And I know that I'm a snob and an asshole and that that's a me problem. But I, I find CGI very hard to look at. 
Um, I find right. CGI, especially when it's juxtaposed with real humans, just makes me a bit seasick. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. especially now that it's replacing actual sets so much of the time. I watched oh, Doctor oh Strange for the first time a couple weeks ago, and I was like, and that is actually like a very stylized film that does a lot of really, really interesting geometry with CGI, which, and it feels much, much better than like Black Widow does, you know, which I also just watched recently, where they have <laughs> literally, if she sits in a bar, the bar is CG, you know, it, yeah. it's totally different, I guess, aim with the CGI. So it's, yeah. So what I happens then to aesthetics? What happens then to set dressers, set designers, prop makers? Mm-hmm costume designers makeup artists you know yeah. but i think it goes back to what alan was saying about the switch between movies and tv and i really do think mm. that movies in order to get people in the seats and make money i think it's just getting more and more homogenized and it's becoming mass market entertainment so the studios will sort of pay a shit ton of money to make a really big film that's going to be basically a surefire hit in order to make even more money back from that. Um, and it just keeps doing it over no and over, right, exactly. No risk. So that's that's kind of what the cinema is going to be, I think. And it's kind of a shame because we've lost those um, mid-budget films that were massive in the 80s and the 90s. Mm. And that and might kind have of been kind of... Yeah, they have become TV. You have that. Also, Russian Doll dropped yesterday. Oh, I'm my God. Excited about so it. Excited. I haven't watched it yet. I'm so yeah. excited. There you go. A weird fucking show, you know, backed by a visionary. Like, you know, a lot of people would follow Natasha Leone into the dark, myself included. But like giving people space and a a budget to experiment and fuck around is you might get a bunch of bum numbers. But you also might get a couple of million people to whom those bum numbers mean the fucking world. Not everything is for everybody. And that's, I think, where I stand with the Marvel things, where I'm just like, this is very general, isn't it? And (laughs) I, sorry, that might be the worst thing I've ever said, but it is. That's not such a good way to sum it up. It's very nonspecific, isn't it? You know, like... And they they shoot certain scenes, like in Eternals, which is dreadful. They have their first um, non-heterosexual kiss, but it's sort of like an, a non it's a non-dialogue scene. It's a moment in a doorway that they can easily extract for the Chinese market. Yeah. You know, it's not committing no to anything. No commitment. There's no commitment to it. No. And that is being able to see those Tetris blocks is maddening. Yeah. Because I want when I watch a piece of fiction, I want to forget everything that's happening other than what is happening in front of me. Like the rat running across the screen in the dark crystal or like the movement of the observatory or like I want to be watching the mastery that is in front of me so intently that I can't see the strings. I can't, if there's a weird lighting moment, it's okay. Like it doesn't hit me. It just glances off me and belongs to the mood of the piece. You know, like and flaws are interesting as well. There's nothing interesting about flawless CGI. Yeah, if you have a puppet that might maybe looks a bit like he's jerking around because he's on someone's shoulders, that's he is on someone's shoulders. Of course he is. You know, like yeah, like he should look like that. Hand that's for the skex's head. That's fine. Yeah, that's part of the character of the beast. And I think we're very lucky to have pieces like that. And I think part of the devastation of the sort of the great like Henson Mythos is that they outlived 
him and thrived and people like fucking love them you know um and that they were risky like the risk is worth taking general yeah we have we have we have i don't i think we've i i'm terrible for describing things as cold play but like it, meaning that they're just for everybody like i just i think it's i think these films are for everybody you know absolutely but i think that the reason that they're for everybody is because they're so personal and they're so yeah. um such an innate expression of something uh deeply individual as well do you know yeah yeah like the, can i tell you well. something that will give you some hope yes yeah. i Please. met i met a teenager the other day who told me that her name is crystal and i was like oh that's funny like we were talking about the dark crystal and she was like oh yeah my dad loves that movie he's got loads of like dark crystal tattoos she didn't say it overtly but I could tell that he named his kid after the Dark Crystal. And like, I feel like it's our responsibility to keep these films alive. Yeah. And I think we can do that in lots of different ways. And if it's naming your kid Kira or Jen or Henson, you know. Or, or writing if, a whole novel in the yeah. spirit of exactly what we've just been talking about, which you did. Yeah, like telling the story alive. of those stories and keeping that torch on. Um. Josh, will you tell us a bit about your book before you go? Sure. Yeah, it's called uh, The Shadow Glass. Clearly, is, that's a mirror kind of of the Dark Crystal. And it's about the son of a filmmaker who goes on a quest with the puppets from his dad's failed flop 1986 puppet film called The Shadow Glass. Who are foxes. Um, with foxes, lots of puppets. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's basically my love letter to the 80s fantasy. Um, I kind of, like, as we've discussed, I just got really down on the fact that nobody's making puppet fantasy films anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just had this idea in my head a few years ago. Where I was like, well, I'm going to, I kind of, I write books. So I want to write a book about movie puppets. And it kind of just sat in the back of my head for a while. And I couldn't really figure out what it would be. I didn't have like the heart of it yet. I didn't have the actual story or the emotion of it until I started thinking about Jim Henson and the so-called failure of Labyrinth. Um, and so the book is essentially about the idea of failure um, and what it Legacy, can do yeah. to people and how perceived failure isn't the same as actual failure. And actually failure can be um sort of self-defined and you can decide if something's a failure or not like i it's like getting bad reviews it's like well i like what i did you know i you, you might not like it but i consider it a triumph <laughs> you know um so yeah it's my it's my sort of like quirky ridiculous heartfelt um love letter to jim henson there's some brilliant puppeteers in it as well as puppets they were like my favorite Oh, Some of amazing. my favorite scenes were in. Um, I'm not gonna. I I just think everybody should read it, and it fucking slaps. But thank you. Uh, it is definitely a beautiful love song to. Uh, Big Jim. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, yeah. Josh. Uh, please tell yeah, me where they can great. find you on like Twitter or some places like that. I'm on Twitter at Josh Winning. I'm on Instagram at Joshua Winning, just to keep things lively. And my website is joshuawinning.com if you do website type stuff. Great. Sarah, where can we find you? 
Uh, my books, Fire and Vampires and Other Words for Smoke, are available in all good bookstores. Um, uh, Josh and I share a publisher. We are both part of the same house. Whoop, Titan, go on. How are you, Lydia, if you're listening? Um, <laughs> uh, at Twitter, uh, or on Twitter, I'm at Grifsky. On Instagram, I'm at Sarah Grifsky. And if you like zines, um, on Patreon, I'm uh, patreon.com forward slash zine club. If you would like some good posts a couple of times a year. Uh, what about you, Al? I am Alan underscore McGuire everywhere. Juvenalia is Juvenalia underscore pod on Twitter. Juvenalia pod on Instagram. Uh, we have a Patreon where we are going to be adding some new episodes. Definitely the time this is out, there will be new Patreon episodes up there. There's already like 25 or so up there. They're lots of fun. About what we've started and finished. A lot of video game talk. Um, playing to their songs on our phones. Playing to their songs on our phones. Very good. We have beers. Very good. Very yeah. Good. Um, thank you, Dean McDonald, for our artwork. Thanks, Dee. Thank you to Tall Tales for having us. I love you, Cassie. And thank you again to Josh Winning for a fascinating episode. I'll yeah, see you in two weeks, everybody. Josh. Bye. See you in two weeks.